This podcast is a product of the 4th and Inches Network. A podcast network designed to keep Husky fans up to date on their favorite programs around UW. Enjoy the show and go dogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. We are dropping it like it's hot right before the All-Star break for Major League Baseball with the Seattle Mariners rolling in a 14-game winning streak. Welcome to the Dog and Duck Show. I'm the dog. My name is Warren. With me, as always, is the duck. His name is Mark. Mark, how are you doing, my friend? Warren, I'm doing fantastic amidst, you know, I mean, I think our previous conversation on this pod was all about conference football realignment and how depressed we were by by (laughs) that. And it is so fun to jump on with you here on a Sunday night and talk about a red hot Mariners team and just, you know, have have something that's taking place on an actual field uh, that's exciting and, and worth talking about. No doubt about it. And if you are new to the Dog and Duck Show, uh, we want to say welcome. We are a sports podcast that always talks about what's going on with dog and duck sporting news. But we do not exclusively talk about dog and duck sporting news. We reserve the right to talk about whatever we want to. And so We will get into a little dog and duck news today, but this podcast is going to be about our beloved Seattle Mariners. And uh, and Mark, I'm going to ask you a question later on in the show. And the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? So you can answer that in just a little bit. But before we do, as we always do, let's get into a little dog and duck news. So right now, this is the time of the year no Sleep June has come to an end. Uh, the DeBoer Day Massacre Blitz of, uh, I think it was 11 recruit commits over the course of about a 10-day window has come to an end. But things are still sizzling for the Washington Husky recruiting staff. Uh, over the last week, they picked up two key recruits, a three-star defensive lineman from Minnesota, Elinius David, six foot three, 209, excuse me, Davis, not David. Elinius Davis, six foot three, 295 pounds. Um, and this is a guy that, uh, once again, as we've kind of thought about this unique transition period that Kalen DeBoer and the new coaching staff find themselves in, here you have, once again, another guy from the middle of the country coming to the dogs, even as the dogs have struggled to recruit from their own backyard. But anytime you can get a coveted defensive lineman uh, out West, that's a pretty significant get for uh, a West Coast college football team. As we know, that's the most difficult position to recruit on the West Coast in college football. So that was a big get for the dogs. And then perhaps even more surprising, four-star cornerback out of Louisiana, 
down the road from LSU, which also has a pretty significant claim as DBU in college football. And uh, he chooses uh, the Washington Huskies over a, a massive list of uh, of offers and, and teams courting him and pursuing him. And, you know, it's interesting, just on the message boards, Mark, LSU fans are asking the question, why can't we keep in-state talent? <laughs> so, you know, what do you say? It may, yeah. I mean, maybe that's just the way that it's going to be moving forward. What do you think? You know, uh, I mean, yeah, I would say to go down to LSU and pull out a defensive back is a pretty huge um, undertaking, you know, especially because of of their history. But also, LSU is in the midst of a, of a coaching transition. Brian Kelly is more of an offensive guy there. Uh, so you do kind of wonder, are they going to still have that kind of DNA? Um but Washington, similarly, in a transition to a more offensive-minded coach, and a, and a lot of the coaching staff that kind of helped create Washington's reputation for churning out elite defensive backs aren't necessarily with the program anymore, uh, and they were still able to kind of convince a guy that this is the place where his future is in good hands. So, I think it's a it's a tremendous uh, job by the Huskies. I mean, that's that's probably the at least by star ranking, the biggest recruit of the of the DeBoer era, right? That is correct. He is now the top overall recruit in this class and thus uh, the highest ranked recruit that DeBoer himself has brought in. Uh, so this is a big time get for the dogs. And there's, there's some other guys that they're tracking down, but I would venture that um, he will, that unless someone comes out of nowhere, he will end up being the highest rated recruit that we bring in, assuming that all the recruits we have committed actually sign their letter of intent um, in December, whenever that opportunity comes. So uh, yeah, good, good week for the dogs. They continue to hustle on the recruiting trail. Just another little minor note uh, over the weekend, the uh, Huskies had their, um, their season ticket holders event the uh, Dogs Under the Stars. It's a great family-friendly event where families get together. Uh, they watch a movie this year. They watched Encanto, the Disney movie, and, um, and just enjoyed a good night sleeping out under the stars at Husky Stadium. The kids got to run out of the tunnel and, uh, and meet Dubs, the, the mascot. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking about how these kind of events, they may seem silly and not that um, important, but that's how you really capture the next generation of, of fans. So I'd love to see more of that kind of stuff, not just for season ticket holders, but uh, for anybody that wants to see their kids grow up uh, fans of whatever team that they support. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's, uh, that's great type of event. And, and one that if I were a Husky fan, I would have loved to have participated in. <laughs> All right, Mark. Well, I know you've got some really good news. And of course, this week there was some pretty tragic news within the duck world. So why don't you kind of give us the lowdown on that? Yeah. And gosh, hard to even um, frame it that way because the tragic news is so tragic. I mean, on, on the positive front, it was a recruiting win for the Ducks to get to bring in five-star quarterback Dylan Moore, which had been talked about for a few weeks. We've talked about it on this 
show. He's a kid from Michigan who had been recruited by the likes of Michigan and Notre Dame and LSU and Texas A&M. And so for Oregon to, to get a quarterback of his caliber, the third ranked quarterback in the country, according to some recruiting metrics, um, is obviously a big win. But for the entire Oregon football program, really the the news of the week was was uh, the tragic death of tight end Spencer Webb in a kind of a sound like a freak uh, diving accident or cliff jumping accident um, at a lake outside of Eugene earlier this week. And this is just uh, one of those things that, uh, you know, when this happens, you feel for a team and then you also kind of get a sense of the impact that an individual player can have on a team where, you know, the stories that you read about Spencer Webb just sound, sounds like one that he was a kid that really um, had a hard upbringing, you know, his mother and father both had substance abuse issues and weren't really part of his life. And so kind of came out of this, this broken environment, but everybody that talks about him just kind of talks about what a positive source of energy he was and what a great, great teammate he was, how coachable he was and, um, and how deeply his loss will be felt by, by his teammates and, and the coaching staff. And so uh, just a really, really sad piece of news out of, out of Oregon. Well, I know that coaches and fans from throughout throughout the Pac-12 have rallied to support uh, the Oregon Ducks as they mourn the loss of really, a, a, from what it sounds like, a charismatic, energetic, um, just the kind of young man that people wanted to be around. And it certainly seems like he was beloved by his, his teammates, by his, the, by his coaches, the fans, and I'm sure his friends and family back home. So on behalf of Husky Nation, of course, we, uh, you know, we mourn with you and, and uh, wish nothing but the best for uh, the Ducks as they uh, have to really kind of process this grief and then figure out um, how to move forward. And so, Mark, you know, with that in mind, I mean, I think, you know, there's never, there's never a time that you ever want to see something like this happen or hear this kind of a news, it's kind of news, but with, with Dan Lanning being new to the program as the head coach, um, what does this, what do you think this does for this Oregon Ducks team kind of going into Dan Lanning's first, first season as the head coach? Well, God, I mean, it's hard to even um, parse that because you, you don't want to look at this as something like, uh, oh, well, you know, this is an opportunity for the team to rally around. Like if, if the team ends up having a good season, uh, they will, I'm sure, dedicate that season, um, you know, to their fallen teammate, as we've seen other teams do most recently, Utah, you know, had multiple tragedies that affected last year's team and they went on to have a great season and, and spoke with love about mm -hmm. um, the players that they had lost and how that had kind of served as some sort of inspiring factor for them. Um, but, but that almost, you know, sometimes you get to talking like that and it almost seems like you're, you're breaking it down as a fan of like, Oh, this could really this could really give us a boost going into the season when obviously nobody's thinking in those terms. Like this is a 
a tragedy involving a human being who lost their life tragically. And I think, um, you know, what, what Lanning's role is now is to simply, um, to be present, you know, and his, the tweet that he sent out, uh, the day of, of Spencer's death is he said, uh, so full of life in every moment of the day, your smile and energy will be missed. Spencer, I love you. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of the, I think the response that you would want from, from a head coach is a response of, of genuine compassion and, and love. And, um, and I know that one of the things that he's talked about since coming to Oregon is how heavily relationships matter, you know, that, that especially in the era of the transfer portal and players coming and going, that the deeper you can invest in, in relationships is, is of fundamental importance to him. And so that, that seems to be uh, happening right here as, as he's um, doing what he can to, to provide support to his players during a really, really difficult time. Well, this is certainly a sobering reminder that the, even as we've talked about in, in many ways, the cheapening of college football with the pursuit of the almighty dollar, coaches have a tremendous uh, influence and responsibility to care for these young men and help them to navigate these kind of you know challenges and tragedies that are inevitable in life. And um, you know it, it sounds like Lanning is taking the right approach in this you know in this case. And I do hope that um, that each player who is impacted by this this tragic loss will get the the support that they need the counseling that they need and be able to process their grief in a healthy way so that they can get on with the season and get on with their lives and and um and and make the most of you know what is a a really a terrible terrible situation and and mark there's really no there's there's no segue from that you know in terms of how we transition topics uh, from right. something as serious as, 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 you know, the loss of a young man to something, you know, in comparison, so trivial, but we are going to go ahead and change gears. And as we talked about at the top of the show, um, this, the, the story of the day, the, the story du jour is the Seattle Mariners. And, and Mark, for our, our, our fans who, who are listening to this, this is Sunday night, um, but the, the day before the, the All-Star weekend really begins. And uh, you and I, we, we talked to each other, I think about four or five days ago and targeted Sunday night um, as when we would record this, this week's podcast. We're both going to be in and out over the next few weeks. And so this was the best day. And we said... Let's do an episode on the Seattle Mariners. We haven't really done anything about the Mariners up to this point, and we could not have timed this thing any better. The Seattle Mariners end the first half of the season on an epic 14-game winning streak. It's the second longest winning streak in Mariners history, and it's still going. So the potential to exceed the, the, the record of 15 games is still on the table after the All-Star weekend. This team has won 22 of their last 25 games, 
and it's the most wins by a major league team in a 25 game stretch since 2017. So Mark, my question for you, as, as I asked at the top of the show is, do you believe? Boy, that is such a loaded question. Uh, Yes, yes. I mean, it's. Uh, do, do I believe that this is a team that uh, could break the postseason drought that the Mariners have have experienced um, for much of this, you know, the 21st century? Uh, yeah, no. I. I mean, I. I think. I think there's every reason to believe this is a team that was in competition for that final spot up until the final weekend of the regular season last year and seemingly got better in the off season, added a Cy Young winner to their rotation, you know, um, or, or I guess um, they already had the Cy Young winner in their rotation, but uh, no, no, they added, they added Ray over the off season. They added, that's what I thought. They added the Cy Young winner over the off season. So um, there was reason going into the season to think that the Mariners were going to be a little more, you know, of a competitor, even this year than last year. And then they started out the season in such a fashion that just kind of, I think made a lot of Mariner fans go, here we go again. Um, This team just isn't, isn't quite ready for it. And so now this 14 game winning streak, I think has a lot of us thinking like, well, this is a little more like the team that we thought we were going to see, you know, uh, coming into, to the season. So you know, I don't know that I think that they will necessarily track down the Astros, who they sit nine games behind going into the All-Star break. Uh, but I think they're going to be a very interesting contender for the, the wild card race alongside, you know, the, the several teams from the American League East where the entire division is over 500. So I, I think it's going to be a fun, really fun second half of the season in Seattle. Do you believe Warren? What I mean, let me put that back to you. What what is your belief level like with this team? You know, Mark, you know that I'm a man of faith, and as a man of faith, I have a tendency to believe. I want, you know, I'm like Mulder. I want to believe. I mean, I'm like, yeah, I'm like Mulder. I want to believe, but uh, I have been burned so many times by the Seattle Mariners team that I do consider myself a skeptic and a cynic. But I've got to say, at 51 and 42, seeing the way that this team is playing, seeing the way that this team is constructed, seeing what's coming up uh, as this team potentially rounds into full uh, full shape, I do believe. I, I didn't believe last year, but I do believe now. And I think you mentioned Robbie Ray, Cy Young winner, he started the season off really mediocre. I mean, he was like, yeah. you know, probably like the 60th best, 70th best pitcher for the first couple months of the season. Right. But just over the last, uh, I don't know, month or so, um, he's he's pitching better. He struck out 12 on Friday night with three runs. Uh, his ERA has dropped down now to uh, 3.56. And uh, over the last uh, seven starts, he's got an ERA of 1.36. And, you know, we may not be able to, to, to see that maintain at that level for the whole year, but that's closer to what we were expecting was a dominant Cy Young pitcher. 
And I think he's on his way now to really being that ace that we've been looking for. And then the 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 bullpen has just come alive. The the pitching is uh, dominant. I mean, there's been so many games over the last 25 games where we really needed to just hold on for two innings. Yeah, we had, we had a one run lead. It's three two, you know, and it's a matter of can we hold on? And we've seen this this uh, you know the relief staff come through time and time again over this 25 game winning streak or not 25 game winning streak, but 25 game uh, winning period. And uh, so, yes, the answer is I do believe, but obviously we're talking about right now a 14 game winning streak. That's not going to last forever. So Mark, I'm wondering, maybe give me a kind of like place your bets for me. How long will this winning streak last and how long will do you think this this super hot streak last you know where they're i mean they're they're 22 out of 25 in their last you know 25 games they're, they've won 14 straight you know you, you can't keep that up over another 70 games but how long do you think that they will keep burning at this nitrous oxide level of of play yeah, so I guess there's two schools of thought on this, right? Is that on the one hand, um, you can say that like, well, coming into the all-star break is the last thing you want because you don't want to lose that momentum. You're winning every day. And the thing about baseball where you play virtually every day is when you're on the winning streak, it's like you can't wait to get to the ballpark when you wake up in the morning because it's like, hey, we got another game today. And so to take, to just kind of hit pause and have – what now three or four days off where you're not playing at all you know there's some that might say well that that isn't necessarily what you want to you know keep a streak going but I kind of look at it more of like uh this is this is kind of a nice little breather for them where they've been playing out of their minds uh they've got a chance now to uh to get away, get a little refreshment. A couple of guys getting well-deserved all-star, you know, uh, selections are going to be be at the game themselves. The rest of them can kind of get a little time off. But now that there's kind of a reset of saying, okay, we're in the mix. It's the second half of the season. We're starting out with a series with Houston right off the bat, uh, the team that we're chasing. Uh, we're very much in the mix of, of the wild card race with half a dozen other teams. So it's kind of like, uh, it's a reset to say, okay, we've got to keep putting this together now for not just a couple more weeks, but for three more months. And if you're getting ready for a three month slog, that's where I think it's not bad to have a couple days now to kind of catch your breath, soak in the fact, I mean, you know, uh, anytime uh, a Mariner comes up in the all-star game or the first time a Mariner comes up in the all-star game, I can just hear Joe Buck is going to is going to talk about how, and the Mariners have been red hot winners of 14 straight. And, you know, uh, there's going to be some excitement about that. There's some excitement in the city of Seattle, uh, but it's a slog to keep that going for, for three more months. And so I don't, I don't know that like the winning streak is going to last much longer, 
But like, if I'm looking at their pers- their win percentage, do I think they can win 54, 55% of their games in the second half of the season and put themselves in position to get a, a, a wild card berth? I absolutely do think that. So a 54, 55%, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a very reasonable, you know, expectation i think at this point right now they're winning what like 85 percent of their games yeah so you know that the the mariners are going to be um traveling to houston or no way i believe houston's traveling to to seattle uh after the all-star break that's going to be a really tough series to continue to keep uh, a winning streak going so you know maybe they get 15 maybe they get 16 if they get more than 16, I think things are going to get just insanely hot around here. I mean, that would totally change the environment of Seattle Mariners fans if they were to somehow sweep the Houston Astros uh, and keep that streak going. Not, I would not expect that. I yeah. don't expect that. But that, I mean, ju- you know, if we're just playing what if, that would be... I mean, I think maybe not quite, you know, uh, Super Bowl, uh, you know, Seahawks season level of citywide uh, fandom, but I think it, it would be it would be bordering on those kind of conversations. And you know, speaking of that, it's interesting because you talked about the two All Star uh, participants in this year's All Star game. And one of those being rookie sensation Julio Rodriguez, the other being Ty France, who's an alternate, but Julio Rodriguez. And it's, it's so interesting to me, Mark, how it kind of seems like, you know, just as Russell Wilson is fading from the Seattle sports fan, uh, you know, podium, now it looks like Julio Rodriguez is, is prepared to step into the mantle of being this city's premier sports, uh, you know, icon, sports hero. And I mean, did did you see this coming on May 1st? Because on May 1st, Julio Rodriguez was batting 200 and had yes. not hit a single home run. He has been an overnight sensation. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I did not have any, I think you were present for my first Julio Rodriguez conversation when it was a couple of us guys were sitting around talking about, oh, does, do they have club control over him for how long? Like when he was just kind of first heating up and then he has just gone to another level these last few weeks. And, and now it's kind of has that feel of like, you know, who the great Mariner rookies that we can remember, Ken Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez, like Julio is kind of giving off those kind of vibes right now. Well, maybe not Ichiro level. Cause that, cause he came in as like a seasoned pro, but sure, sure, um sure. But I mean, it's it's a real thing now where the numbers that he's putting up through the first 90 games of his career are historically great numbers. In fact, you you sent me a tweet the other day. Do you have that uh, about what what Julio's done from a a major league history perspective? Yeah, yeah, this is this is great. So uh, through 90 career games, he has he has more than 15 home runs, 15 or more home runs, 50 or more RBIs, 20 or more stolen bases. He is the first player in major league history 
with that kind of a stat line through 90 games in the majors, at least 15 home runs, at least 50 runs driven in and at least 20 stolen bases. So and, and really, really almost cool. all of that in like the last 40 games. Yeah. Yeah. First career grand slam, you know, I mean, it's just, he's, he's done a lot. He's done. And a lot. So, so, so Julio will be in the all-star game. He's participating in the home run derby, which will only continue to, to potentially build his national recognition. Uh, this is a budding star for Seattle sports and a Seattle market that is desperate to find that next major star. And so the question that we kind of were, were talking about just a, a few minutes ago was, will this continue? Is there, is there legitimate reason to, to be confident that this team will be able to sustain a, a healthy level of success throughout the rest of the season? And I think, Mark, you and I would probably agree that, that making the playoffs is the definition of success for Seattle Mariners baseball. Yeah. Would you agree? So, so, you know, if they, if they do anything in the playoffs, that's just like icing on the cake because we're just desperate to see a team get to the playoffs to have a post season. It's been 21 years since we've had a major league baseball postseason in Seattle. So with that in mind though, Looking at the way that this team is, uh, you know, this team is playing. Julio's playing his best ball in the last month. Robbie Ray's playing, playing his best ball. Ty France, Cal Raleigh, uh, the, the list goes on. Matt Brash has just been brought up, and he's looking dominant. And then you've got guys like Mitch Hanniger, who's about to, uh, you know, re-enter the roster. Kyle Lewis is looking for his opportunity to get back up to the major leagues, um, you know, there's a lot to like about what we're seeing from this team and what they could be if all these guys continue to play at their level or um, are able to get healthy and get back on the team. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point that you make is that this is, they do have a couple big guys who, if, if they get back and healthy, could really give this team a boost over the second half of the season. I think the other thing to look at here, Warren, if we're really kind of trying to break this down of, of like how much of a chance do we give this team? Let's just, let's just take a peek at the schedule here coming out of the all-star break. They get Houston at home for three games right off the bat. The two best teams in the American league by far have been the Houston Astros and the New York Yankees. They play Houston right off the bat coming out to the all-star break. Then they go to Houston for four games in late July. Then they immediately go to New York for three games in early August. And then they have New York come to Seattle August 8th, 9th, and 10th. So of their next 20 games out of the All-Star break, 13 of those games are against Houston or New York. Yeah, That is, that is a really, really tough stretch right. uh, coming out of the gate. However, if they kind of hold serve during that stretch against against Houston and New York, and maybe they take care of business against Texas and LA, and, and we're feeling pretty good about them on August 10th, then we're looking at the last 50 games of their season in which, get this, Warren, they only have 
five games of their last 50 against teams with a better record than them. And those are National League teams, Atlanta and San Diego, mm. when they come to Seattle. The Mariners do not play Tampa Bay in the second half of the season. They do not play Boston in the second half of the season. They do not play the central leading Minnesota Twins in the second half of the season. They'll have a few games against Cleveland, a few games against the White Sox, who are both teams that are kind of scuffling for, for that final wild card positioning. But the Mariners have a lot of games against the Angels, a lot of games against Oakland, a lot of games against Texas, a lot of games against Detroit. These are teams that are not in contention. These are teams that are going to be bringing in a lot of younger players later in the season to give them a look. And so if they can hold it together over these first 20 coming out of the all-star break, and we're feeling good about their chances after they've played this gauntlet against Houston and New York, both on the road and at home, then the schedule really does open up for them. They've played one of the toughest schedules in the major leagues in the first half of the season. And that could really pay dividends for them over these last 50 games. If they can, you know, keep their head above water enough uh, to get there. No, those are, that's a great insight, Mark. I mean, I think, like you said, they're going into the toughest part of the second half with the greatest level of confidence and the most uh, momentum that, that they're going to have uh, all year long. So that's got to bode well. They're, they're coming in to the, to that, you know, um, that challenging part of the season, rested, excited, uh, feeling confident. So if, like you said, if they can make it through the buzzsaw of the Astros and Yankees, um, you know, maybe 10 and 10 or, you know, even better 12 and eight or something like that. I think you're absolutely right. That sets them up for a really nice opportunity to finish the season strong. So with that in mind, Mark, would you, you know, if you're, if you're the, the, the Seattle Mariners brass, is this the time to, to make a move? Is this a time to, uh, to, to trade, Somebody and you know, there's already rumors and not, you know, and, and speculation about would the Mariners go after a guy like Juan Soto? Uh, would they trade the farm for a guy like that? What do you what do you do if you're if you're holding the cards right now, Mark? Are you you know pushing all the chips in, or are you saying you know what I really like the cards that I've got right now? So that, that's the funny thing, Warren, is I think, you know, you brought it up with, with France or, or I'm sorry, Hanniger and Lewis as these two guys that they potentially have coming back and healthy to contribute in the second half of the season. That's kind of like making a big trade and getting two acquisitions to join your roster. Like that can have the same impact and um, you I know mean, what you're going to get. You know that those guys, they fit yeah. with the system. They understand the team dynamics. Yeah. Okay, go keep going. Yeah. Yes. Well, I was just thinking like the, the Mariners uh, have been struggling for so long and have finally produced all of this homegrown talent. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm becoming of the mindset that it's like, you don't just want to give that away for, for some kind of shot in the dark. And yeah. there are exceptions to this. Like I remember, I think it was, uh, I remember when Milwaukee traded for CC Sabathia, CC Sabathia was with Cleveland 
Milwaukee traded him and whatever he did down the stretch run for Milwaukee was just unbelievable. You know, it was like, he was like nine and one in his last 10 starts or something like that. And it was just, he put them on his back, pitched them into the playoffs. I think they made it to the NLCS that year and lost. Uh, And so it's like, you know, sometimes you do just have to pull the trigger and recognize that this guy is such a game changer. Uh, But there are some times where some of these trades get viewed as, oh, we're making this big move. We're, We're grabbing like the fourth guy in our bullpen that we really need in our bullpen. And we're giving up some major prospect to do it. I don't necessarily see, you know, the Mariners in that kind of, of position here where they have such a, a glaring weakness that needs to be addressed right now that you give up some prospect that you're really excited about because, because they've gotten this far because a lot of those prospects are coming into their own right now and really, you know, up to the challenge. And I would, I would like to see over the next couple of years, if they can kind of keep that pipeline stocked. What, what, where, where, where do you come on this? Do you, are you feeling a little more antsy? Or are you wanting them to, to make a move here? I, I could not agree anymore, Mark. I think number one, to, in my opinion, the, the way to win at baseball has changed and it's all about youth. Now you've got to get, you've got to have a, a, just a brimming farm system. You've got to have young guys waiting in the wings. Uh, this is not the, the 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 days of Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds and your mega superstars jacking 60 or 70 home runs a year. This is this is a game where you need youth and you need to kind of spread the talent out. And I think Seattle Mariners fans, for better or for worse, we have paid our dues and then some to get to this point where we have a young promising team chock full of major league and minor league talent waiting to be the, the, the core of this team for years, for, for a decade or so. So I don't want to see them trade away three or four of their top prospects to sign uh, a a 10 year deal to get one player, even a guy as young and as talented as, as Juan Soto, first of all, I don't think that we can necessarily afford Juan Soto. If the guy turned down a 10-year, $444 million uh, offer from the Washington Nationals, what is he get, what's it going to take for him to sign with the Seattle Mariners? And now we're looking at these younger players that look like the future of our franchise. We're going to have to set ourselves up to pay these guys. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I like where we're at. I like the youth movement that we have going on. I think the move for Robbie Ray was, was clutch and we're starting to see that pay off. We're looking forward to seeing Hanniger come back, potentially, uh, you know, play at an all-star level. Kyle Lewis has the potential to play at an all-star level. You know, Mark, if you remember Jared Kellenek, who last yeah. year at the end of the season, went on a tear and uh, hit 14 home runs up over the last two or three months. He's starting to round into form in the minor leagues, just waiting for a chance to get back to the majors and, 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 and prove that he belongs. So I think that there's a, a, you know, a bevy of talent and we just need to roll the dice on the guys that we've got 
hey, if there's a, you know, there's a, a fifth starter that we can get, you know, in a, in a, in a value trade type of a deal, I'm not opposed to that, but I like what we've got. Yeah. And rarely does that deadline deal, like I, I'm just browsing a list of the greatest major league baseball, you know, trade deadline deals ever. And virtually none of them led immediately to a world series. You know, occasionally you have a team like the diamondbacks traded for Kurt Schilling at the trade deadline. They didn't win the world series that year. They won the world series, you know, the next season. And so sometimes you get something like that, but it rarely swings the title one year, just making that kind of a, a deal. I, um, I brought up CC Sabathia. He actually went 11 and two with a 1.65 ERA down the stretch for me. I Milwaukee. remember that. So, you know, if you, if you, Sometimes you, you bend him though. I mean, that yeah. was that was surreal, you know. I mean, that's like you know, Kurt Schilling going on his tear, you know, Rand, Randy Johnson going. I mean, it was one of the greatest pitching stretches in modern baseball history. And you can't expect that, and you certainly can't manufacture that. It's well, and for Cleveland that year, he had been six and eight with a 3.83 ERA. There it is. Yeah. And then, he, and then he goes to Milwaukee and he threw seven complete games over the second half of the season for Milwaukee. I mean, so that's the all timer of like a yeah. team that just hit the gold mine. But like you said, like, first of all, that's never happened again. Like nobody else has a story like that. Uh, and secondly, you know, you just, you can't, you can't predict it. And so often these things, uh, the, the other notable one that I think of that really worked out and it was surprising to me was, the 2004 Red Sox traded Nomar Garcia Parra, who was a franchise icon. Yeah. And they traded him for Orlando Cabrera, who was kind of a weak hitting defensive maestro. And they ended up winning the World Series, breaking the curse, mm -hmm. all of that. Cabrera was fantastic defensively at shortstop. But it was this really weird thing of like trading this franchise icon, Nomar Garcia Parra actually help them to win the title in some backward way like that totally doesn't make sense that would be like the mariners getting rid of ty france right now like you right. know right and, um yeah i mean i don't even know if there is a comparison because nomar i mean or noma was you know he he was the face of the boston red sox i mean yeah like he was the most popular player on that team and had performed incredibly for two or three years previous to that i was shocked when that deal took place and then for it to work out in boston's favor the way that it did again you can't predict it you can't manufacture it they just you know maybe theo epstein uh figured that out but uh that's just not the way that you know you really can can you know move the pieces and and, and expect that kind of result so, so Mark, we, we mentioned Julio Rodriguez. He's going to be in his first all-star game. He's 21 years old. He won't even be 22 until December, till the end of the season. Um, and also participating in this home run derby yes. is the 42 year old Albert Pujols. And, uh, you know, Mark, I had to, to admit, I have to admit that whenever I saw the headline, that Pujols was going to be participating in this home run derby. I was like, my goodness, what has Pujols been doing these last few years? Cause I mean, I just kind of had lost 
track of him a little bit. And um, man, as I just started thinking about um, Pujols and, and, and what he's done and, and the player that he has been, Mark, I, I'm in awe. I mean, this is one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And so I wanted to just kind of finish with a little bit of a conversation around that thought of, you know, what do you think about Albert Pujols and his legacy, his standing as one of the all-time great baseball players? Yeah. Uh, l- let me first start by saying, I think it's a cool thing that he's been invited to participate. He did not earn an all-star berth based on his play this season, but the commissioner, Rob Manfred, one of the rare things that I have to applaud Rob Manfred for has said, Hey, we're going to let Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera kind of have these honorary all-star spots. It's kind of taking a page. The NBA did this a few years ago for Dirk Nowitzki and Dwayne Wade, when it was clear they were retiring. It's a nice way to kind of honor these, these legends in their last moments of the game. Yeah. Uh, Miguel Cabrera hit his 500th home run, got his 3000th hit recently. So he's, you know, very much in that same tier as, as Albert as as one of the all-time greats of this generation. Uh, but you put the question to me of where does Pujols rank and, and Warren, I was surprised how I had to move him up the ladder. Like the more I dug into it, yeah. I kept having to move him up the ladder because I was starting with, I was thinking, okay, well, you're talking about the greatest players save our lifetime you've got jeter because of the postseason success you've got griffey because i think both of us would agree just monumental talent that that was so beautiful to watch swing a bat play center field five tool player yeah could do it all yeah um you've got bonds and a rod and of course anytime you bring them up you have to like asterisk their names (laughs) And yeah, so yeah. maybe even by bringing them up, you're just bringing them up to disqualify them, but, but they have to at least, you know, be coming to the conversation. You've got, you've got Mike Trout right now playing, but playing on a team that is. Mark know, McGuire. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, and Mark also just, let's just say for the sake of this conversation, let's talk about everyday ball players. So we'll, we'll exclude pitchers. They're kind of hard to compare to everyday ball players. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, those those you know the 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 nine guys in the lineup, day in and day out. Um, how do you how do you rate how do you review a guy like Pujols? So, as far as just kind of accolades, he's won three MVP awards, mm-hmm. which um, for comparison, Jeter never won an MVP. A Rod won one. Griffey won one. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty incredible that he's won more MVPs than Griffey, A-Rod, and Jeter combined. Yeah. And he has won multiple World Series. Ken Griffey Jr. famously never went to a World Series. Barry Bonds lost the only World Series he played in. A-Rod finally did win a World Series with the Yankees late in his career. But Pujols has won more World Series than Bonds, A-Rod, and Griffey combined. And so just, you know, taking those kind of metrics, you would have to, you, you start with the realization that, okay, if you're just talking of racking up trophies, mm-hmm. MVP trophies, World Series trophies, there's not a lot of guys in the history of the game that have what Albert has in terms of the personal accolades and the team's success. And then you really kind of start digging into the other things. I mean, he was not just a great power hitter. He could hit for average. He won multiple batting titles. He was a great defensive first baseman won multiple gold glove awards as a first baseman early in his career 
he played third base, he played left field and right field. So like he was athletic enough mm -hmm. to play elsewhere on the diamond if he needed to. And then even I found this little stat like uh, that I sent to you about his base running. You know, he stole more than 10 bases in a season uh, three times, which you think about and you say, well, like 15 stolen bases in a season, big deal. You know, that's not exactly Ricky Henderson. Like, why am I even bringing that up? But a lot of like the all-time great Sluggers. hitters, yeah. Frank Thomas, Miguel Cabrera, Manny Ramirez, they never stole that many bases in a season. Their career high is like seven or eight in a season, all of them. And so for Pujols to multiple times, he's stealing 14, 15 bases in a season. It, it means that he's being strategic on the base paths. It means that even, even in that phase of the game, you know, he's looking for the chance where getting that extra base gets him in scoring position for the next guy or moving from first to third on a single to right field is going to help his team more. Like it's every element of the game that he excels in. And when I just started to kind of combine all of that, Warren, I came to the conclusion that he's, I think he's the best player of our lifetime. I don't think that's overstating it. Uh, happy to listen to arguments for others, but I came to the conclusion. I, th I think he's the best all around player in our lifetime. Yeah. I mean, when you say that, you just go, wow, that is a major statement. It's a massive statement. And I think to your point, we, we've kind of eliminated a swath of players who have been associated with the steroid era of baseball. And that's a whole nother conversation. We've talked about it in the past. I don't want to go down that road again, yeah. but but, you know, the guys like Barry Bonds and A-Rod, you know, and, and Sammy Sosa and Rafael Pomero and Mark McGuire, these were the guys that when I was growing up, along with, of course, Ken Griffey Jr., these were the guys that we looked at and we said, these are the greatest players that we've ever seen. And, uh, you know, I think that the the just the astronomical numbers that they put up during that era where everybody was hitting 40 home runs 45 50 some guys hitting in the 50s you know guys like Jim Tomei are hitting 54 home runs in a right. season and so i think in some ways what that's done mark is that it's caused us to not fully appreciate what Albert Pujols did kind of riding the, the, the collapse of that steroid season, the steroid era and putting up the numbers that he did. And you, you talked about, you know, this is a guy that he's hit over the course of his career, over 3,300 hits, you know, 3000 hits in a career is hall of fame level. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, and those are, that's like guys like Tony Gwynn, right. you know, that, that, that's just that one thing. If you could just hit 3000 hits, you know, in a, in, in a career, your hall of fame, 685 home runs. Now he's hit six so far this season, you know, it would be a miracle, but he could potentially go past 700 before he, he retires. But let's yeah. just say he doesn't. Let's 690. Still, that puts him in rarefied, rarefied air as a home run hitter. That 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 statistic just by itself, that's Hall of Fame uh, induction. You know, a lifetime 296 batting average 
And really, up until about three or four years ago, he was over 300. Well over 300, yes. You know, so only in these last few years of his career has that number dropped. And I guess that's the price that you pay. Maybe you add a few home runs and add a few hits and uh, and RBIs, but at the cost of your career batting average coming down, you can't have it both ways. But, uh, you know, lifetime 300 hitter. You look at the, the batting averages across the league these days, and that's pretty darn impressive. And then over 2,100 RBIs, Mark, to your point, he's had 117 stolen bases in his career. And, uh, you know, and then he's, he's accumulated every honor that you could possibly imagine in baseball. He's won World Series. He's won MVPs. He's won Silver Sluggers. He's won Gold Gloves. There's nothing that this guy has not done. And he's done it as a guy that's known as a man of integrity character there's never been any question about uh the way that he plays the game the the way that he lives his life and so mark it, as as unbelievable as it is for me to say i i think that Pujols is at the very minimum a top 10 all-time great baseball player so this is where i mean when you start going into like the all timers, it, it becomes really difficult to like pare down, you know, that um, I think I said to you that if, you know, that I could throw in like uh, Ty Cobb, Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, that that could be my top five. And all I've done is list outfielders that haven't played in 50 years <laughs> and, and like, and all five of those guys seem like, well, how can you have a list that doesn't include those five guys? So like, and you didn't even include Mickey Mantle or you didn't include Stan Musial or whoever, like there's, there's just so many great players. There's so much great history, but you kind of, you threw an exercise at me to kind of figure this out. And you said, well, pick a great, pick a player from each era, basically, you know, mm -hmm. the game has been, the modern game has been being played for, say 125 years. So just pick the best player from each 25 year period or so. Yeah. So when I started penciling that out, I said, well, from 1900 to 1925, it's, it's Babe Ruth. Mm -hmm. From 1925 to 1950, it's, it's Ted Williams. Uh, from 1950 to 1975, it's, it's Willie Mays, which interesting, I've said three outfielders, but I, I think those three feel pretty locked in. 1970, 75 to 2000 feels like it's kind of a pick your poison. We both love Ken Griffey Jr. Mm -hmm. uh, if you like, you know, middle infielders, then you could talk yourself into Cal Ripken or Joe Morgan or, or Mike Schmidt as a third baseman, or you could talk yourself into Jeter maybe if you're counting kind of his late nineties stretch. I mean, Ricky Henderson is in there. Like there's just so many different players um, that I, I think we kind of, settled on Griffey, but also acknowledged that there's probably some inbuilt bias there that, um, that there are some other guys that you can talk about, but essentially then that brings us to 2000 and we've already established that, you know, if Albert Pujols is the best player of the last 20 plus years, then, then there's kind of a way to make him top five, like, and that's, yeah. That's higher. That's higher than I thought I could talk myself into. 
Uh, and I, I still don't know how I feel about it. Like if I were filling out a starting nine, would I have Albert Pujols at first or would I have Lou Gehrig? Like, I, yeah, you know, well, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you mentioned Lou Gehrig because first of all, I was just thinking about, okay, you know, we have to grade by error because it's really unfair to grade in any other way, but take Lou Gehrig. He was six foot, 200 pounds. That's a big man uh, in, in that day, but you've got, uh, you know, you've you've got Pujols, who's six foot three, two hundred and thirty-five pounds. So I mean, just a significantly yeah. bigger, stronger, you know, athlete than a guy like Lou Gehrig. But I've already mentioned the numbers that Pujols has put up. Gehrig, I mean, obviously one of the greatest careers ever, but uh, twenty-seven hundred hits, right? Four hundred ninety-three home runs. A higher batting average, 340, um, you know, but less stolen bases, less RBIs. Um, so, and and again, and perhaps an era without the specialization of middle relievers that have made it really hard um, to put up big numbers, you know. And there's maybe maybe you you would argue that, but there is an argument to say that with the specialization of pitching starting pitchers often only go four or five innings these days. Um, you know, that, that you look at what, what Pujols has done compared to arguably the greatest first baseman of all time. And it doesn't seem to even compare. I mean, it seems like Pujols is clearly the superior baseball player over a guy like Lou Gehrig, which feels like uh, blasphemy to say that if you're a baseball purist and a historian, but I think that's what we're looking at here. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I would say clearly, but I think, I think you made a good argument, you know, and I think, um, I mean, some of the stuff with Gehrig is he drove in 173 runs or more three different times. (laughs) Like, I mean, like he was, he was such a machine. He's, he's hitting 370, 360, you know, stuff like that on a regular basis. I mean, he, but I think the point is, is like Pujols is in the conversation that it's like, if you're talking best first baseman of all time, you're going to start with Lou Gehrig. You're going to enter probably Jimmy Fox who played at the exact same time as Gehrig. Mm -hmm. And you're going to talk about Pujols and you're probably not going to really discuss anybody else. Like, Mm -hmm. You know, Willie McCovey was a great player, but I think most baseball historians would say he was not on the same level as as a Lou Gehrig or an Albert Pujols. And then the contemporaries to Pujols, whether it's Miguel Cabrera, who we mentioned, or Frank Thomas, or some of these guys who were jaw-dropping offensive players, but not the complete package that that Pujols was. I just think, you know, he's he's on the very, very short list of of guys. Whatever the club is, you know, he's in it. And, and that's not something that uh, everybody else can say, including, you know, you said that we kind of exclude all of the guys who used steroids. My argument for Pujols is let Bonds and A-Rod be in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think Pujols still has a better resume than both. Uh, and that's primarily because of, of the playoff success where a-Rod was a 295 hitter in the regular season and a 259 hitter in the playoffs. Uh, Barry Bonds 
was also, I think, like a 298 hitter in the regular season and uh, a 245 hitter in the playoffs. Albert Pujols, you mentioned his career batting average is just under 300 for his career. He was a 321 hitter in 86 playoff games. He was arguably a little better as a hitter in the postseason than he was in the regular season. I think that's that to me clinches the argument for him over the steroid enhanced careers of, of Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez, that even with all of the special aid that they got from, from using steroids, they still weren't the kind of postseason performers that, that Albert Pujols was. I mean, he's had an extraordinary career and is truly among the greatest of all time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think if you're going to include the steroid uh, players, it, I think, I think Barry Bonds, man, that's a really, really tough one because I mean, he, he's the all time record, you know, record holder in home runs, single season uh, record holder in home runs, <clears throat> you know, played, uh, you know, left field was really a, a five tool guy, um, especially in the first half of his career 514 stolen bases i mean that's that's you know legitimate speed that he once possessed um yeah it would be tough for me to say throwing all of the steroid conversation out that Pules was a better player than barry bonds although i think you make a compelling argument that in the postseason uh, he was more successful, but I think all that does to me is it just accentuates the point that we are making that a guy that has never had any association with performance enhancing drugs, Albert Pujols, is being um, you know stacked up evenly with a guy who clearly benefited in in. Uh, an unnatural way from the use of steroids like Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds was a Hall of Famer without steroids. Yeah. He chose to extend his career and change the style of his game with steroids and certainly accumulated uh, unbelievable statistics in the second half of his career because of that. But he was an incredible player before that. Uh, I mean, if you were to lop off uh, the first 10 years of his career, it, it, to me, it would be borderline Hall of Fame. So yeah. um, I think, I, I just think, whatever you want to think about that, the fact that that Pujols is in that conversation and, and has a compelling argument for being the greatest player of potentially the last 50 years is really remarkable. And I'll be honest, I haven't given him enough credit. Yeah. He has not, he has not gotten enough praise from me or I think from anybody for what he's accomplished. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the same boat, Warren, until you kind of sent me that text and said, put his career in historical perspective. I don't, I don't think I'd really given it the, the time it was due. I mean, I think I'd always kind of considered him up. Oh, yeah. Albert Pujols is great. But like when I dug into it, it was, no, I mean, he's, he was really, really, really special. And uh, 
all of that is to say it would be really fun if he and Julio Rodriguez kind of found themselves squaring off in the in the final of the home run derby as the the old guy and the young guy kind of doing battle. That would be a great great way for that derby to to wrap up. And that's a great uh, you know tie in as we kind of wrap up this episode today with with Julio. It appears, and it's way too early to uh, to count our chickens before they've hatched. But with Julio, we've got the closest thing to the next great Mariner superstar. And uh, the Mariners, in spite of a very limited amount of uh, you know on field success, have had some of the greatest players of all t- time. Uh, in their system and on their roster. When you think about, uh, you know, going for me, going back to Harold Reynolds, and then of course the kid, the natural Ken Griffey Jr., Randy Johnson. Um, you know, uh, A. Rod, Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. Hero. I mean, these are some of the greatest. Uh, Edgar Martinez. Um, uh, Felix Hernandez, I mean, some of the greatest of all time. And it looks like to me that Julio might be the next in that line of great all-time Seattle Mariners. And if he can pair the, 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 the best years of his career with Mariners' success, um, he has the potential to leave a legacy in this city that uh, will not be forgotten anytime soon. Well, maybe so. Yeah. And uh, it would be, it would be super fun to root for him here in the second half of the season and, and uh, see if he can spark some magic. All right, Mark, well, we're going to wrap it up. Um, If you're listening to the show, thanks for listening. Go out and get your uh, Julio Rodriguez rookie cards and uh, put those in the plastic and uh, just pray that there'll be something that you'll be showing your kids one day down the road. But uh, for all of our dog fans out there, go dogs. And for all the duck fans, go ducks. We'll catch you next time.